0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While the United States has been successfully inoculating children age 5 to 12 for the last month, what can Canada learn as we begin to do the same this week? Well, we'll talk about that. Governor General Mary Simon delivers the throne speech to open the 44th session of Parliament today. What can we expect? And Ontario's Auditor General Bonnie Lissick joins us to discuss her annual report on the environment and how the Ford government is deliberately ignoring public consultations. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast and it starts... Now, today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML, children's vaccinations are, are available and you can start making your appointments as of now. Should you do this? Well, we're going to talk about that in pretty big detail. Dr. Jeff Pernica, McMaster Children's Hospital doc, uh, says the vaccine has undergone extensive testing and more than 3 million children in the U.S. have already received it. And so I, I
1: feel very strongly that we know quite a lot about this vaccine, given how much it's been used in adults and older people, and now even how much it has been used in teenagers and younger people, both in North America and the rest of the world.
0: So uh, to vaccinate or not to vaccinate with kids, uh, let's let's talk about that, and let's talk about the implications of not doing it and of doing it. Uh, and to uh, carry on that conversation, so please to welcome back to the program, Dr. Rodney Rohde. Uh, Dr. Rohde is a professor and a chair of the Clinical Laboratory Science Program at the College of Health Professionals at Texas State University. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Good morning, Bill. It's always an honor to be on the show. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, as I say, we're pretty excited about this here in Ontario. The, the first shipment arrived uh, at Hamilton Airport, as a matter of fact, uh, for distribution right across the province just a couple of days ago. Uh, families are registering right now. Uh, the poll we did, Doctor, uh, the other day suggested a little over half of the people, uh, parents that, uh, that uh, answered a poll, said, yeah, we're going to be first in line to get the vaccine. So there seems to be some enthusiasm uh, to get the kids vaccinated. Maybe explain to us because it's been going on in the States for some time now. How important are these childhood vaccinations as we continue to battle this pandemic?
1: Yeah, Bill, absolutely. They're important. Like any vaccine, when you can reach that portion of the population. So in the, in America, there's about 20% of our entire population fall into that group of, of, you know, teenage down. And when you look at the five to 11 year olds, that's about 28 million alone. And so to get those going. And we have have, we've had a great start here. We're, we're about it. Like you just mentioned, we're about at 2.6 um, million or a little more than that. So we've already hit 10% of the children ages five to 11. And, um, you know, the really, the really important part of this is not only protecting those children, but when you start thinking about the community protection of those children mixing with, you know, their elderly grandparents, their own parents, Uh, teachers i mean anyone that's in other age groups that may be immunocompromised you're also you know creating an environment that's safer for everyone and that's always the goal with childhood vaccinations
0: and and you've explained that to us in the past doctor and i'm glad you brought this up again because it's it's something i think we need to remind ourselves about every now and then and that's well what we call silent spread right i mean uh, especially with children uh you know they may actually be positive they may actually be carrying the virus but they may have no symptoms or mild symptoms uh, but that doesn't mean that they're not spreading it to somebody else in their household or somebody else in their their circle, uh, whether it's a teacher or something else like that. Uh, and that's what perpetuates the spread of, of of well, in this case, the Delta variant, I guess.
1: It really is, Bill. I mean, when you have, um, and it's, it is a great reminder for people as we head into the holidays. It's even though we know that young children may absolutely not get as ill, they may not have as many symptoms, and they absolutely can be asymptomatic. As can anybody. But certainly, they're not going to have as high of a, a mortality issue. But that does not mean they cannot be a vector. They can still spread the virus, whether they're symptomatic or not. And so, you know, when you have your children vaccinated, you're doing a really a good public health, uh, community health service. Because that means you're protecting those around you. And as we've said many times on the show, many many of us do not know. Uh, Who's immunocompromised around us, you know, a cancer patient doesn't put that on their forehead. Someone who has uh, lupus doesn't put that on their forehead. People are walking around us every day that have different types of issues uh, that cannot be protected through immunization. So when the community does that, you're doing it for the better good
0: it seems so long ago but in the early days of like the first wave of this pandemic doctor when you were talking to us about uh, what we might expect here is and then we were learning more as as you mentioned about the virus almost on a daily basis here uh, there was a, a line of thinking which i i hope it now has been proven to be incorrect that this doesn't impact kids I, I mean i mean some politicians said it doesn't have any impact on them uh, others who are a little more i guess grounded in this suggested well that's going to be mild as as you suggested but I'm looking at the stats here from just the other day, uh, Doctor, and, and for instance, here in the province of Ontario, one third, thirty-three percent of the new COVID cases, the most recent COVID cases, are kids. So it does that's have right. an impact on them.
1: It does have an impact. I mean, and again, it goes back to you know some of that's not their fault; it's they haven't been eligible for vaccination. Sure. And so that just shows, you know, again, it shows how critical it is when you get a great percentage of, and we've done a great job uh, with, with, especially with the elderly. And more and more with with um, middle aged individuals getting vaccinated, and what that's done, Bill, is it pushes that virus. It's it's competing for host. And when you get you know older people protected and middle aged people are protected, and now we're getting into the teenage groups protected, where are they going to go? Well, they're going to start looking for the easiest target, and the easiest target up to now were, you know, infants up till eleven years old. So we still have some work to do. Uh, we still You get that vaccine into all those arms. That second dose needs to get in. And then we probably need to even consider ages, you know, down lower. Uh, The infants up to five will be probably the next group that are going to be looked at. Do we need to move into that group?
0: Let's talk a little bit about what happens in a situation like that. If somebody is a a carrier, even unbeknownst to them, as you mentioned, they could be totally asymptomatic on this uh my my understanding from the past conversations you and i've had doctor is that every time that spreads every time another person is is testing positive as you mentioned that person is now a host for that virus that's giving the virus another chance to morph into something else uh you know and we've seen this already this wave and well the delta variant right now uh we're hoping that there won't be any more but the more that we allow it to spread uh, the greater the chance of this morphing into another virus that we're going to have to deal with all over again. Is that is that the, uh, the essence of what we're dealing with here?
1: Bill, I, I'm going to make you a virologist yet. That is, <laughs> abso- that is absolutely the correct uh, thinking. Uh, and, and we know that not just about SARS-CoV-2. It's really any virus uh, that you give that opportunity to continue to jump into a naive host and propagate. This is what viruses do. They 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 basically live to mutate. They live to kind of adapt to their environment. And so if you give, for instance, in the U.S., if you look at the numbers, we're kind of hitting that 60% mark of vaccinated people, you're still leaving 40% of the population eligible for that virus to move into. That's that's a lot of people uh, when you think about over 300 million total population. So there's still over 100 million people that that virus can jump into and do its thing. And so the quicker... You move into lower transmission rates, into the lower numbers of hosts, the quicker you kind of alleviate that mutation variable. Doesn't mean it can't still happen down the road because it can, but you certainly start reducing that risk. And that's really what I've been preaching the last month or two is risk reduction. So many people continue the conversation around, you know, are masks really important or vaccinations important? It seems to be fading. It's It's not. <laughs> We're still having... Thousands of cases a day in North America, we're still having, you know, sometimes days with over a 1,000 people dying. And so it's still around. So it's all about risk reduction. The more layering you do of protection, uh, the better off we all are.
0: Well, because we've seen it happen. I I ran into a good friend of mine, a dear friend of mine over the weekend, doctor, who uh, was double vaccinated. He and his wife double vaccinated, as they Mm -hmm. always were, mask wearing, social distancing, adhering to all the rules. And uh, and he, he caught COVID. Uh, About three, four weeks ago. And, uh, you know, wondered how the hell that could happen because he thought he'd taken all the protections. Didn't have to get hospitalized, thank God. I mean, this is a guy who's in great physical shape, works out on a regular basis, does all the things he's supposed to do. He says, I went through three weeks of hell. I wouldn't wish this on anybody, but at least wow. I didn't have to go to the hospital. And he says, that's probably because of the vaccine. But that just, I guess, I, once again, indicates it's out there. And and you, you don't know who you're going to run into or who you might bump into. Or, uh, you know, a grandchild or a, a son or a daughter or something like that could bring the virus home. And all of a sudden, it's in the house.
1: Yeah, it really is. And I'm, I'm sorry to hear that story because I think that is in here, too. I've had those cases. I've had that happen. That is the hardest, but the most important story to keep telling people is that, you know, the vaccine is definitely not 100%. You know, it's about 90 ish. People can have breakthrough infections, but it absolutely, the data is absolutely showing that if that happens, most of the time you are protected from mortality, from death, and even from severe illness where you end up in a hospital. So, yes, it. It, it's not perfect. Uh, neither is a mask. Neither is social distancing. Nothing is is perfect, Bill. But when you layer those things together, uh, you, you you increase your protection and you lower your risk. So, you know, we need to keep that message out there that uh, even if you have a breakthrough infection, thank God, because you're probably not in a hospital or in a morgue. So that's, that's the beauty of the vaccination. That's the beauty of the other protective measures. So let's keep that story going.
0: Doctor, you just mentioned about the efficacy of the vaccine. And we know now that after a period of time, that efficacy does wane uh, with maybe Pfizer a little more than, for instance, some of the other ones, Uh, which, of course, brings up the topic of the third dose. Uh, We're a little behind the states here. I know that there's there's been a number of states that have enacted this some time ago. Uh, We've got the third dose available now. We're talking about the most vulnerable now, of course, people with pre-existing conditions and and the elderly at this stage. How important is it, especially if you're a Pfizer patient uh, or, or, uh, well, a number up here, of course, AstraZeneca, I know that was never uh, uh, spread much in the United States, although you produce it there, but uh, to get that third dose and and how important that is to to maintain that level of defense.
1: Yeah, it it really is. Let me start with this. So one of the most important things, I think, in my opinion, is I look at the boosters, the third dose or the second, if you got J&J. Are for those individuals in the U S and elsewhere, if you got a J and J vaccine and you've probably seen this, it, you know, and we looking backwards, it's always easier in hindsight, but remember that one was a one dose regimen mm-hmm. and people got up to about 70, 72% protection. What we're seeing is if you take that individual, the J and J individual, and you give them a Moderna, uh, a mRNA vaccine booster, they will, they will get a 76 fold increase in protection. If they get a Pfizer, it's about 36 fold. So I would definitely recommend people who had J and J vaccines to get an mRNA. In other words, kind of mix it and get that Moderna or Pfizer second dose. Cause it's going to out, you know, it's going to really protect you. The rest of us that did Moderna or Pfizer, it's, it's still boosting. Well, it's anywhere from five to 10 to 12 fold higher. When you get that, I'm getting mine this week before the holidays. And so it's, It's showing after six months to eight months, you know, it's starting to wane a little bit. And I think the reason this is really important, as you mentioned earlier, is that Delta variant. That one seems to be, or it's not seen. it is uh, more transmissible. It stays in the body longer. It has a higher uh, amount of virus, a higher titer. And so it's just a little nastier variant. And so we want to boost that uh, titer of antibodies back up as high as we can get them, especially as we go into the winter and the holidays.
0: To that point, i got a couple of minutes left here, Doctor, and I want to ask you sure. uh, about a submission that you put onto the, uh, actually, Texas State University faculty newsletter. Uh, and you mentioned about the holidays, of course, the American Thanksgiving, uh, you begin celebrating this coming Thursday, uh, right. which is not just a triple header for the NFL, I mean, it's, all, it's also the beginning of the holiday season, <laughs> yeah. traditionally. And and you put a submission in there talking about what we need to do over the holidays, and, and that includes all the way through Christmas holidays into the new year of 2022. Uh, There's a lot of apprehension on both sides of the border right now, doctor. We don't want to see another spike like we did over the last couple of winters. Uh, How can we as individuals do something about that?
1: Right. I thank you for mentioning that, Bill. It is, it's a, an article I put out. Our, our university wanted to put out something towards our students and faculty as we head out for, we're actually done today. Uh, The students are anyway. And so we're looking at trying to remind people to be, you know, to be careful and we're still, as we've been talking about the entire time, vaccination is of the utmost importance. And if you can get every family member vaccinated uh, when you're together, that's that's the best situation. Now, remember, it takes a couple of weeks once you get that first jab to, to kind of get that good circulating antibody. So you still have to be careful. And in those instances, whether you're unvaccinated or newly vaccinated, we need to be careful when we're mixing with intergenerational uh, family gatherings. Uh, we want to be careful around grandma and grandpa, around aunts and uncles and other people that are elderly, uh, and, and other immunocompromised individuals, and around young children. So young children, as we mentioned, in many ways are somewhat immunocompromised. They're, they're not fully developed. Their immune systems aren't fully uh, ready to go. And so infants, you know, up to four or five years old now are also something we're concerned about. If you're mixing lots of cousins, lots of family, lots of friends. So the same holds true this year, in my opinion, as last year. We're better off. More and more people are vaccinated, but we still want to be considerate of the people we're going to see. And so keep that in mind. Keep your mask handy. Um, I'm recommending people really think about a KN95, which is showing uh, much better protection than, say, a cloth mask. And you know, just use good judgment. Think about the high risk. Think about what you're at. Try to be outdoors if you can, or at least in very well ventilated rooms. Open some windows up if it's not too cold, and and some doors, and try to bring in some fresh air. And just be careful. Uh, wash those hands, and be careful. And and um, again, just use good judgment. Everybody knows the risk now. We know what's the best thing to do, and and try to utilize those measures. Uh,
0: Great advice on this. People, by the way, can just Google that, uh, Dr. Rodney Rohde, and it'll be uh, come up there and you can get all of this advice and uh, very sage advice. Uh, doctor, as always, thanks so much for this. A uh, Happy Thanksgiving. I know how hard you've been working, you and your staff, over the last uh, number, couple of years, I guess, on this. I hope you can have a little downtime over the holidays and, and just unwind a little bit. But uh, we're going to stay in touch, and thank you so much for this today.
1: Thanks so much, Bill. I am going to try to get a little downtime, but uh, always on
0: top of it. And it has been a joy and a pleasure to have
1: the opportunity to speak to you on your show.
0: I really appreciate it. Thank you, doctor. Take care. Now, Dr. Rodney Rode, uh, of course, from Texas state university. You're listening to the bill Kelly show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, uh, parliament starts up in earnest today. Uh, They selected a new speaker. Well, actually they selected the old speaker to uh, serve once again in this term Uh, yesterday. uh, Today, the speech from the throne, uh, quick program note on this. Global News Radio will carry the uh, the speech live uh, here on our affiliated radio stations, including CFPL London and CHML in Hamilton, uh, starting at 1230 this afternoon. We believe the Governor General will probably actually start uh, reading the speech uh, just a few minutes after that. But as Karen Rebo reports, uh, the Prime Minister is going to outline the agenda for his third Liberal mandate in a speech from the throne today.
2: The throne speech is expected to be short and contain no surprises. Recapping themes laid out in the Liberal platform during the recent federal election campaign, which produced a second consecutive Liberal minority. It's expected to hit on finishing the fight against COVID-19, rebuilding a more resilient, fairer and greener economy, and turning up action on fighting climate change. The most novel aspect of the speech, though, may well turn out to be the person who delivers it. Mary Simon, the first Indigenous person to hold the office of Canada's Governor General. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press.
0: So uh, what can we expect there? As uh, Karen mentioned in her report, probably nothing in the way of surprises, but uh, there needs to be something substantive, I guess. Uh, This is a minority parliament after all. Joining us to talk about uh, what we may hear and and the uh, aftershocks, I guess, of that is uh, Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Dr. Turnbull, of course, is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. Glad you could join us today.
2: Good morning. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, this is, this is a big day for a lot of reasons, uh, simply because uh, I think we can probably anticipate right now the reaction we're going to get. The Conservatives aren't going to like what they hear today, uh, and they're going to try to get back into what they're talking about here in their agenda. Uh, yesterday on the program, Jagmeet Singh, the NDP leader, was on with us and basically said there is no coalition, there will be no coalition, but he will support the agenda items that he thinks are going to be helpful. Uh, that That's sending a pretty strong message isn't it doctor that look at there's there's a synchronicity there a lot between uh, the ndp platform and the liberal platform and that's pretty necessary if this government wants to survive
2: oh absolutely and i think um like it it shouldn't be difficult in some ways for the parties to be able to find ways to cooperate because there's so much overlap in terms of what they want to do and how you know they want to they want to rebuild after COVID 19 And so the difference between the Liberals and the NDP seems to be more around, you know, how much are we going to spend on something as opposed to whether or not to do it. And so that should provide quite a bit of grounds for cooperation. I mean, I heard yesterday, too, uh, saying things like, you know, we're going to support things that are helpful to Canadians and we're not going to support things that aren't. And so they've got to put some line in the sand or else it just looks like they're along for the ride and they get no political credit for that at all. But I think it's going to be difficult when it really comes down to it. Right. Like who's if they're really kind of having that that contest and they're staring each other down, who's going to win? Are the liberals? We already can see that the NDP want to increase the amounts of those benefits. Are the liberals going to give into that? Are they already banking on giving into that? And so they're lowballing the number and the knowledge that they're going to come up for the NDP. Like, you know, so we'll, I think we'll see a lot of jockeying in the next little while.
0: Uh, the game of politics. I, I tended mm-hmm. to think exactly as you just described it, Doctor. Uh, they probably lowballed it so they can look like, okay, yeah, we can do this. Because they did that initially when CERB came out, as you recall. This is what we're going to give on a, on a monthly basis. And the NDP said, no, that's not enough. Okay, we'll, we'll make it more. That's fine. Uh, and I got to figure that that discussion's already taken place. Uh, and, but some of the other programs, uh, well, there are going to be some points that I think need to be negotiated here, because uh, during the election, the prime minister did talk about putting a sunset clause on some of these support payments. Uh, the NDP seemed adamantly opposed to that. So there's going to have to be some middle ground there, wouldn't there?
2: Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's we'll see that very quickly because, um, you know, if Mark Holland's comments yesterday or any, any indication they want to you know come in, get this speech from the throne out of the way get four pieces of legislation through by the time they leave in December. And so they don't have any time to waste. And they'll be, I mean, some of them I think are going to be pretty easy, like the conversion therapy bill that had gone through before, the bill around... Um, creating criminal sanctions for harassing healthcare workers like those things will go through pretty quickly i think and the paid sick leave for federal workers that stuff will go will fly by it's this is going to be the one this is going to be the one that needs to be negotiated around the extended benefits packages
0: well the conversion therapy is going to be rather fascinating because that was a bill as you mentioned in the last session that split the conservative caucus uh, yeah. and, and it was it was a rac- rather acrimonious split. I mean, it was not just, hey, we are for it. No, we're against it. No, we're against it. And we think you guys are idiots for doing this. Uh, paraphrasing, of course, but it got pretty heated. Uh, they're going to have to make a stand one way or another on this. And, and Mr. O'Toole's going to have to make a stand. Now, he's already said that he supported the legislation. Uh, but part of the game of politics, as you and I have talked about in the past, doctor, is uh, you got to bring your team under control here. That's what party whips are for. Uh, how does Aaron mm-hmm. O'Toole do that?
2: Yeah. I mean, his, I think what happens in the conservative party and how his leadership survives or doesn't, you know, what kind of approach he takes, that's going to be as dominant a narrative in the House of Commons as the, the survival of the government, to be honest. Like, it seems like even though it's a minority parliament, the situation of the government is more secure than Aaron O'Toole's leadership. And so... I mean, he's got a couple of challenges here. I think he's, he's in a situation where people feel empowered to openly challenge his leadership, which we usually don't see, right? Like, even when a leader is having a tough time, they usually work that out in-house somehow, or they don't. But to see, um, and yes, it's a senator, but, like, even to see a senator go and make the step of putting this petition out there. And also, you know, earlier on, a member of the National Council, this is a leader who cannot say with certainty that he's really got his party behind him. And so that's going to play out in different ways. It seems like the vaccine mandate thing, like they've, they've managed to sort that out, but, you know, not with any real clear leadership on his part. It's just sort of, you know, it all seemed to come together at the last minute that all of the members of the caucus either have vaccines or have exemptions. But, you know, we'll see whether Holland keeps pushing on that. But the, we're also seeing the, the existential crisis that tends to grip the conservative party really take over here. And the conversion therapy bill is an example. Um, is the leader able to put forward a position that resonates with mainstream Canadians that, that the party is going to get around? Or is the party going to be split according to the different viewpoints, very different viewpoints, that are still represented in the party and there's not a kind of coagulation of those things?
0: And that's going to be one of the key things. And I, I, as we mentioned, you know, it's, it's beholden upon the leader and the party whip to try to get everybody on side on whatever the issue is going to be and have a stand on this. Uh, but you got to figure there's people within the caucus that don't respect Aaron O'Toole as the leader. So why are they going to respect his opinion on some of these issues? Uh, I know he wants to change the channel. I mean, he's been trying desperately for the, the last four or five days, particularly. He wants to talk about liberal corruption and, and you know, the liberal this and the liberal that. Uh, but he hasn't taken this off the front pages of the lead story and in, in, in broadcasting here about his own leadership situation. I mean, it's, it's, it's it's like when you drive past an accident on the highway. You know you're not supposed to look, but everybody slows down to look because you want to see what's going on here, and and I think that's the focus of what's happening in Ottawa these days. People are still going to look and say, "How are these guys going to handle this? And how is Aaron O'Toole going to handle this?"
2: That's that's exactly it. And I think you're right. He needs to change the channel, and it's a question of whether Parliament is going to be enough for him to do that. Right? Like he needs. Like I think all all in all, like he's probably better off with the house sitting than not because at least it forces attention to the transactions of the House and the debates and the accountability of the government and what decisions they're making. And you know, for, from his perspective, that can only help him to try to alleviate some of the pressure on him. But I think like, just for, you know, to make it be totally politically coarse about it, he needs a good old-fashioned government scandal. As soon as he can get one, he needs we to blow up again. He needs something like that that would just take the heat off of him.
0: With that in mind, and, and you talked about the aggressive agenda that they've talked about here, the, the bills that, that uh, Mark Holland talked about yesterday conversion therapy, uh, the extension of benefits, and of course the healthcare worker harassment bill. How important is it then for the Liberals to, to move that and, and show that, hey, we're working here? Forget what Mr. O'Toole is saying. We're getting things done here. Uh, because that's not necessarily their track record. The, you know, the last minority government, uh, they moved at glacial speed on a lot of these issues. And, and that really only added to the people's consternation. Can they change gears?
2: I mean, like, I, it's interesting you say that because it really struck me that that is the message, that is the tone and the content of the messaging that we're hearing from Mark Holland. Now, he's been an MP a long time. He's close to Trudeau. Um, he's had experience as a parliamentary secretary. He's a very shrewd kind of politician. Like, he doesn't take any crap from anybody. And so I think he's a very interesting choice for them um, to, to be the person who's really leading the efforts of the government in the House. I think for him, like... He's taking a get like getter done kind of approach, which I think, as you say, is is very purposeful, right? Like it's meant to kind of take take up the the accusation that the liberals have been kind of you know very much about virtue signaling and not so much about getting things done. And so I think we'll probably see a a gear shift here. But I also wonder if because they went for that majority and they didn't get it, I'm wondering whether the, the mindset is okay let's not worry about that. Let's use parliament as a place where we transact business. It's not about, you know, really getting into the the depths of government accountability and scrutiny and holding the government to account and amending legislation and debating. No, this is going to be about we are in parliament for short chunks of time. Hybrid participation is okay. We are here to introduce what we want to do, jam it through and get out. And so, I'm thinking this is a very, um, this is going to be the next couple of weeks are going to be indicative of the government's approach to parliament overall.
0: Doctor, let me circle back to the to the vaccination issue for just a second. Uh, much to the chagrin, I guess, of the of the conservative caucus. Uh, again, some of the comments from Mark Holland yesterday. Who, uh, for people who may not know, he's the government host leader now for the the Trudeau government in this uh, this forum. And and I concur. I mean, he's been in this business for a long, long time uh, from the Pickering area, just northeast of Toronto. And uh, he, he he knows conflict. He knows how to handle it, and he knows how to, to get the barbs in during. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. the, the parliamentary sessions uh, but he which is why I guess he brought up the vaccination issue and he, he you know the statistical thing that he brought up here that it is statistically improbable that multiple mm-hmm. Tory MPs have a valid COVID vaccine exemptions because Mr. O'Toole still has not told us how many of his caucus have been vaccinated how many have exemptions and I believe the number they talked about here was something like one or two out of 100,000 is the usual ratio for people that have legitimate Uh, vaccination exemptions and that of course is either an allergy or uh, uh, pre-existing you know predicament and there's a a lot of concern and speculation as you've heard that well uh, that may not necessarily be the case because we don't know we're told a handful of the 119 people in the conservative caucus have exemptions it could be more than that it could be upwards of 30 I've heard in some circles. How is Holland going to push this? And I know Jagmeet Singh best, has made some concerns about this, too. And and they're doing it on the premise of safety for their members. They don't want people in there that are unvaccinated. Uh, and they're concerned about the spread in, in the House of Commons, et cetera, et cetera. So that's their side of it. Erin O'Toole's side of it, of course, is, well, they've got exemptions. Why don't you just leave them alone? And I know that Michelle Rempel uh, from the Conservative Party has basically said, let's just turn the page on this. They'd love for that to happen, but are are the liberals going to turn the page or are they going to push this?
2: Well, this is, you know, like first and foremost, obviously, this is a public health issue, but it's also a fascinating political issue because the House of Commons is self-governing. And so there's a whole bunch of sense involved in MPs saying, this is my workplace, and I don't want to be in here if it's not safe. And, is, you know, like, where's your vaccine? That's a completely reasonable thing. I think Mark Holland is, um, you know, taking this on as the House leader because they don't want Justin Trudeau to get his hands dirty by accusing the Conservative caucus of anything, really, right? Like, they want the Prime Minister to stay above that. And so, Mark Holland, as the House leader, as the person who, again, is leading the government's efforts in the House of Commons, he's the guy. You know, if the liberals are going to call BS on on the conservatives' approach to exemptions from vaccine, Mark Holland is absolutely the guy to do it. I don't know that he's going to make it his center and his focus for the next few weeks. I doubt it, but he's shown that he's got that in his pocket. And if he wants to rattle the conservatives, if he wants to remind Canadians of their of the conservatives' unwillingness to be totally up front and center about getting vaccines and making sure all the MPs are are you know have the double. That's you know that's something that he's got in his pack in his pocket again that can serve to to sort of rattle the cage of the conservatives and point out that they haven't they haven't towed this line in the rest of, in the way that the other parties have.
0: And by to the just to remind our listeners, of course, it was the Board of Internal Economy that ruled uh, that everybody in the Commons had to be double vaxxed uh, to be able to have entry into this. It was not the the government per se. It was supposed right. to be a multi-party uh, committee, although the Conservatives still complaining that they didn't have a voice in that. But uh, th- that's neither hither nor yon at this stage. It's there. That's a policy right now. Uh, and, and Holland even talked yesterday about the possibility of sending up an independent board of, of physicians to say, OK, you got an exemption, uh, you know, MPX. Show me what it is and explain what your exemption is and we'll make the determination. That's That's really pushing it down the road. Uh, And I just got to wonder if they if they want to create that sort of a a rift, although, you know, maybe that already exists, that rift that we just spoke of. Uh, I know they want to move ahead on their agenda right now, but uh, they may still look at this as political red meat that they can gnaw on for a little while.
2: Yeah. And I mean, for a minority government, it's, you know, just from a purely strategic perspective, it's not a bad thing to have, you know, kind of, again, in your back pocket if you need it. And I think you know this is this kind of dovetails with Holland's indication that they would make hybrid Parliament an option. So if there are people that aren't participating in, you know in person in the flesh, that there would be opportunities for you to continue to participate remotely. And I mean, I, I don't know how Canadians are going to feel about that, to be honest. it's it's you know it's in some ways it's a fact of life for many people that we're we're becoming more um, used to remote work, and some people want to continue it. But at the same time, Politics is, is, you know, there there is a heart and soul and pulse to Parliament Hill. There are still, you know, despite how how we've all kind of had to adjust to more remote ways of communicating and learning and all the rest of it. There's something critical about politics and about political transactions that happen in person aren't on Parliament Hill. And so it would be a very different space, I think, of like a very different approach to politics. If over time some people are participating remotely, it would be very different
0: we should mention by the way just to put this in context that uh, that all of the other party members of the other parties are all double vaccinated with proof of vaccination i think there's one liberal that uh, that that had an exemption but has subsequently become vaccinated so it's mm-hmm. this is all on the conservatives right now and i suppose uh, to your point uh, Holland may decide to run with this, but I mean, it's going to be up to the NDP and the block as to whether or not they think it's, it's a substantive. And both of those leaders have said, yeah, it is. Uh, you know, Mr. Singh yeah. again yesterday mentioned he's, he's concerned about the welfare of his own members and he doesn't want to expose anybody there, which is why he's talking about the hybrid model again. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, I know that some people are envisioning right now that some MPs who may not fall under the, the guise of, of a legitimate exemption. Uh, may be escorted out of the house i don't know if anybody wants to see that uh, happening in a situation uh like this over the next couple of days but uh would they push it to that level
2: yeah i mean like it's it's interesting like again like i, I want to acknowledge up front this is a first and foremost a public health issue and exactly we're not, yeah you know we don't want to to be you know too focused on the politics but we are having a conversation about politics here and this is smart politics on the liberal side it makes a ton of sense for a number of reasons I mean, over the past several months as we've been dealing with COVID-19, the Conservatives have been the ones who are most critical of remote participation in the hybrid model. They were the ones from day one who wanted, you know, wanted to get back in the House and hold the government to account, and they were really clear on that message. And so then you try to try you know, kind of to flip it on them and box them in and say, you know what, like, maybe if you can't show your vaccine, uh, maybe you, you, know, you, you don't come, maybe you participate from home. And so it just you know, turns it back on them 100%. And also because like, as you and I have talked about too, Aaron O'Toole has this, this civil libertarian caucus that's, that's, you know, taking shape within his own caucus, which seems to me to be a direct challenge to his leadership because, you know, he, he's the leader and this is kind of happening without him. But there's that voice in the party that, that is trying to hold on to a sense of freedom to choose whether, you're vaccinated, whether you get vac- vaccinated. And so this move on the Liberals' part just, keeps that division in the Conservative Party in Canadians' faces, you know, as they transact business on the other side.
0: I mean, by definition, Aaron O'Toole's job as the leader of the opposition is is to attack the government and, and criticize the government. But Politics 101, Doctor, says that if you can keep the opposition playing defense instead, uh, you've mm. blunted that sword, haven't you?
2: Oh, 100 percent, right? And then and then, the dynamic in the House of Commons is really about the Liberals and the NDP, And we know that they're not going to they're they're not entering into a formal coalition. And I don't think that was ever really you know a realistic possibility. It wouldn't be good for either of them. But if if the key tension for the liberals is to you know try to make a deal with Jagmeet Singh without letting him take too much credit, that's easy politics, right? Like they're in a good space, and then they they're not you know they're they're walking easy, and just you know never you know good rule in politics is. If your enemy is self-destructing, don't interrupt, let them do it. And so I don't think the the Liberals have to go too hard against the Conservatives. I mean, again, sure, the vaccine issue is a clear one that they can use to really push the Conservatives and, again, get the Conservatives to be wrapped into themselves and their own problems rather than be able to to focus on the government. But I don't think it's even going to take much effort on the Liberals' part, unless Erin O'Toole can really turn this around somehow.
0: Doctor, as always, thanks so much for this. It's going to be a very, very eventful day up in Ottawa today. We'll watch with great interest. Thanks for your perspective on this today.
2: Anytime. Take care.
0: Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, of course, from uh, Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about the uh, latest uh, series of reports from Ontario's Auditor General. Uh, The Ontario government is ignoring the public's right to consultation on environmentally significant decisions as it allows companies off the hook for pollution costs. That's among uh, the many uh, revelations that we find in the latest uh, work from the Attorney General. And uh, to that end, we are so pleased to welcome Bonnie Lissick, the Ontario General, Auditor General, rather, for the Province of Ontario, uh, back to the Bill Kelly Show. Uh, Bonnie, a pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for the time today.
3: Well, thank you very much for having me, Bill.
0: You focused an awful lot on, and a lot of the things that we've been talking about, and, and it, this is not just you know the government versus opposition parties. Uh, an awful lot of interested groups and, uh, and groups that have some passion for environmental issues, which uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking is something that well we know for a fact now is of much greater focus to the people of Ontario and the people of Canada, based on uh, the reaction we're getting from uh, the last couple of elections. Uh, and we're looking for governments to take the lead on issues like this. Uh, and and it's it's rather disturbing as you outline some of the things in the report here about uh, basically this government uh, a lot of the time uh, is not really even following the rules of their own government when it comes to environmental issues
3: um well, we one of the reports that we did uh, uh, put out was uh, on the environmental bill of rights, so under legislation we're required to speak to how that bill operates and whether there's compliance with it and whether the spirit and intent of the act is being met and so yes, uh, in that report, we highlight a number of um, points that um, lead us to the conclusion that the spirit of that act is not being um, followed, and that there is a lot of um, work that's being done in the area of environment in terms of changing other legislation uh, that perhaps the public is not aware of what the accumulative impact of all of that is.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about that. I'll get into some of the other issues, too, about governments getting off the hook, or I mean, companies, rather, getting off the hook uh, because the government's not following through on this. But let's let's talk a little bit about process. And I know that can be a boring conversation for some people, uh, but the reality is process is what the governments are based on. I mean, there are supposed to be rules and regulations about how business is done, uh, what sort of oversight, and what kind of responsibilities The government has in situations like this. And as you mentioned in the report, some of those are outlined in existing legislation. The Environmental Bill of Rights you talked about is one uh, guideline here, which uh, gives Ontarians the enshrined right to public information and consultation on decisions that could impact the environment. Uh, Is the government adhering to those rules and regulations and those those guardrails?
3: Um, We would say that there's changes that are being made to significant piece of legislation that under the Environmental Bill of Rights, in terms of the intent and spirit of it, that we think uh, requires more public information to be provided. So, for instance, you know, there was changes to the Environmental Assessment Act that uh, was made, um, that was passed by retro retroactively exempting the requirement to follow the rules of the Environmental Bill of Rights. There was changes made to the Conservation Act because those changes were put in a budget bill and that then gives the right to exemption under the Environmental Bill of Rights. There were changes made to uh, forestry uh, legislation that um, so, uh, the Crown Forest Sustainability Act that didn't clearly tell the public what the intent of that change would do. And one of the intents is it permanently exempts the consideration of the Species at Risk Act when it comes to forestry, and and that covers about 40% of the geography of Ontario.
0: And and there are ramifications to that. I mean, when you talked about those changes they made to legislation, and one of them included, as you mentioned, in a budget bill, it wasn't its own separate act, and governments have a propensity for doing that with what they call these omnibus bills, sometimes we get that. But there was an immediate pushback on that. As you recall, uh, David Crombie, the esteemed David Crombie, of course, former uh, Mayor of Toronto, of course, Federal Cabinet Minister, uh, resigned from his role as, as chairman of the Greenbelt uh, Committee uh, because of that, and and appeared on our show the, uh, the day after that, basically, and said, "Look at this government's doing an end run around process. You can't do that. That's not how government's supposed to work." And he resigned in protest. Others uh, and had to do, as you mentioned, with the responsibilities of conservation authorities right across the province. In uh, that lack of consultation, uh, and as some people are characterizing it as well, with a stroke of a pen, they're changing legislation uh, without consulting with the public. Uh, it can be very distressing for people that that have a passion for the environment and for trying to maintain our environment.
3: Yeah, I think I think it's all about transparency and making sure that the public understands. You know the the results of all of these changes. I mean, government has a right to make changes. There's no doubt about it, sure. and uh, but I think the public equally has a right to understand the significance of those changes and needs clarity around why the changes are being made. So it's a bit like a puzzle, I guess we'd say, is that there's a bunch of you know changes made that have been made through uh, many pieces of legislation that need to be looked at sort of collectively. What is the collective impact of all of those changes? and that needs to be communicated publicly.
0: But you also stated that uh, when they do uh, engage the public in consultations, uh, they're not often f- forthright with all the information about the pros and cons. Are You're getting some of the information, uh, uh, but not all of it that may be pertinent to, to an informed discussion and, and decision on this.
3: That's correct. There's something called the Environmental Bill of Rights Registry, and that's where, um, information of any policy change, legislation, regulatory change, and any approvals like permits and licenses needs to be posted there that gives people the information that there's change coming, and then, um, people have a chance, you know, to respond to those changes, and then at the end of the day, there's some type of decision or resolution. What we're finding is there's not enough rationale being put into the system around you know the policy changes and the and the uh, legislative changes and the regulatory changes equally there's not enough information at the end of the day when there's a decision that's made why that decision has been made and and how public input and consultation figured into the final resolution and decision
0: well in a situation like that is is it Uh, does it behoove the government to use pertinent, not just pertinent information, but up-to-date information on that, according to the Environmental Bill of Rights? And I I don't want to drag you into the politics too much of this, Bonnie, but I mean, there are ramifications to this. And we saw a couple of examples just a week or so ago, of course, when the Premier made uh, two major announcements about his government support for two highway projects, one, the 413, or the other, what they call the Bradford Bypass up near the Holland Marsh uh, my understanding from the people that that are more familiar with this with the legislation basically said, look at the environmental impact study that they did for the to justify uh, the Bradford project it was done in nineteen ninety seven. Uh, that that hardly seems germane to what's going on in twenty twenty one.
3: Yeah. So I mean, I think the tools that the government now has that they're um, that they're available to use is what's called a minister, minister zoning order. Mm-hmm. And these are being used more frequently and these provide uh, a minister the right to approve um, uh, some type of development without it going through, you know, a lot of the environmental assessment processes. Um, part of it is I think the Planning Act itself is what guides, you know, the development in Ontario and the process behind that takes a long time. So I think people maybe get impatient, but within our reports, we talk about the necessity of looking at that process and still having a process, but perhaps looking at how it could be made more efficient instead of going around the process with the use of um, MZOs. And if MZOs become the popular tool to use to bypass um, more consultation and, and, and sort of the spirits of various environmental acts, um, I think then they need to put out to the public the criteria that are being used and the rules around having that power to you know override um all these other pieces of legislation
0: and i know you talked about that in the report and the 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 story i saw a couple of stories actually from global news and, and a couple of the other web pages yesterday Uh, from the ministry, suggested that, well, we assumed, I'm paraphrasing here, we assumed that the the, the local municipalities would have gone through that consultative process with the public, uh, so that would have been redundant. Uh, But according to to my interpretation of that, the Environmental Bill of Rights uh, lays that responsibility on the government, not on local municipalities. It's their job to do that, uh, not to just simply say, well, it's already been done.
3: Yeah, I, w- I would agree with you that the environmental, uh, the environment ministry has the overarching responsibility to ensure there's, um, you know, compliance with the environmental bill of rights and it's used in the spirit that it was intended when it was created. Um, I think I think um, municipalities typically have followed the, minister- the, the planning uh, process in Ontario. And so uh, that's what they're familiar with. This is maybe adding a new... A new element to the whole process, where municipalities can uniformly um, ask for something directly to a minister and 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 get a decision made if if they want it made. I I think um, what needs to you know people need to sit back and look what is the process that should take place in Ontario overall. There are some mini- municipalities that don't agree with the process, and um, you know I think we've we've noted that in our report that and not everyone thinks that you know uh, going directly to the minister to request something is the right way to go when there is a uh, planning process and and provincial plans in place right now
0: well that was part of the gray area because we've talked extensively about those two projects but i think there's an overarching concern here is about again that word process uh is this if it's determined that all of a sudden they're going to use one of these ministerial zoning orders uh, is it on whose request is it from the municipality is it from the proponent who wants to build the project we there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of clarity there and does that also mean that when they want to use that that order does that necessarily mean that they have to they, they can leapfrog over that process or is there still a process that needs to be followed
3: yeah so we have um now this this uh what we tabled yesterday were our environmental reports we're mm-hmm. t- we'll be tabling our annual report uh, in a short time and in our annual report we do look directly at the land planning process so that report will outline what the planning process is in Ontario and how the MZO component fits into it.
0: Yeah, and, and the debate, as I see it here, is not whether or not, for instance, those roads should be built. It's the process that you should go through to make those determinations. Has the public been consulted? Did they have an opportunity to weigh in on this? And, and I know there's always going to be some people that are going to say, well, you didn't listen to us. Well, if they did listen, they may they can still say, well, yeah, but we disagree with you, and that's that's part of the process too. Uh, there are going to be winners and losers when people feel adamantly about a process, I guess, in either way. And we understand that. But as I'm reading the reports that you d- issued yesterday, uh, I think there's some serious questions about did they have the opportunity, meaning the, the, the interested parties here, to have their say and to have their input into this before ultimately a decision is made. And uh, I, I'm guessing from what you're saying here, the answer to that is, well, sometimes yes, sometimes no.
3: I would I would agree with that. I would say um, one of the key pieces of legislation is the Species at Risk uh, Act, um, Endangered Species Act. And that that is something to be considered in all of this as well, because the intent of that legislation is to protect species that are at risk from being harmed. And um, that is the spirit of the legislation. So there are a number of these changes, um, you know, have impacted that. Um, the ministry itself, we don't think, is doing enough within the ministry to uh, protect species at risk, and and you know a good example would be to look at the issuance of permits and approvals. So there's been you know quite a few, maybe over a thousand permits issued to allow harm to the Blanding turtle, and. Um, and the thought is, you know, we'll put money in a fund and, and set up a habitat for them somewhere else. But there's no scientific proof that the blinding turtle will um, sort of recoup, recome back in a different location than what was its natural habitat. And that needs to factor into all the discussions about development because, um, you know, there is there is this other act that says that, you know, the intent is to um, uh, protect endangered species in Ontario.
0: And I know, as you mentioned, that's also going to be part of the future work that you and your staff are going to be doing on this. But it's it's one of the concerns about a number of things that have happened over the last two or three years with this government, I guess. And that's why I read with great interest uh, the, the findings that you, uh, you issued yesterday. Uh, you know, for instance, with this government or any government, it doesn't much matter. And, you know, when they decide, hey, we're going to build a highway here uh, and it's going to save you a half hour of traveling time, you commuters. Okay, that may be one of the elements of the discussion, but the impact it's going to have on ecosystems should be part of it, too. And and there's a lot of frustration here that they're not hearing that from this government about what is that road going to do to the impact of, of as you say, endangered species, uh, water systems, water tables, uh, and a number of sensitive environmental areas like that. that. That that doesn't seem to get the attention that I think a lot of people are concerned. And according to, as you said, uh, some existing pieces that that, that should be hampered, including the Environmental Bill of Rights, those issues should be part of the discussion. And they don't seem to be in, in some of these uh, these these projects.
3: I think we go back to, you know, there is a ministry in the province called the Ministry of Environment, Conservation and Parks and I think as a public, the public would expect that whatever is done through that ministry is done to make things better. Um similar to, you know, your Ministry of Health and your Ministry of Education, there's always that movement to make things better. Um when you look at all our reports collectively, we don't see that um, how that ministry is operating right now um, is focused on that perhaps as much as it as the public would think it should be.
0: Well, as always, Bonnie, uh, it's thought-provoking, and and I know that's one of the intentions of issuing these, to get people talking about what's going on and, and to, uh, to inform, and uh, we thank you for the work that you and your staff do. I know how diligent uh, they all are uh, in coming up with this information, and uh, we thank you for the time today. It's great talking with you again today.
3: Well, thank you very much for this opportunity and same. have a great day.
0: You too. Bonnie Lissick, Ontario Auditor General with uh, the report. And these, as I mentioned, are focusing on environmental issues. There'll be further reports about these projects specifically, I guess, and how they're working on this. But it does echo a lot of the concerns that we have uh, been talking about on this program over the last little while. And like I say, it's, it's not whether or not to build a road here or to build a road there. It's what kind of an impact is that project going to have and uh, is the government taking those impacts into consideration? And like can say, when you get a report that says, well, not always, and even if they do consult the public, sometimes uh, they're not giving the whole story. They're giving little half facts and half truths, uh, which doesn't really help the conversation, does it? The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.